You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Your family is definitely plotting to kill you and dismember your corpse. It's been six months since you've set foot in the cool marble hallways of home, the scented breezes blowing in from the azure sea. What blows here is a harsh wind, sand-choked and scouring, and there is grit in your hair and beneath your nails. But this, too, is home, your country. Your predecessors ignored this corner of your kingdom, but not you. You have friends here. You've spent a hot, windswept summer raising an army, traveling constantly among sun-soaked villages and the tents of local warlords. You speak to them in the language of their homelands, You use all the skills of persuasion you learned from the masters. In Egyptian and Hebrew, Median and Parthian, you make your promises. Wealth, renown, whatever they ask for. Whatever it takes to convince a man to side with you against an army immeasurably stronger. Your brother, your enemy, waits with his army in the great sandstone fort outside Alexandria. You camp close by along a stretch of desert beach. You tromp through the tents of your mercenaries, rally them in nine different languages. Your brother's army is five times is strong, and he holds the high ground. You've never led an army before, but even you can read the signs here. You are going to lose. When you get the summons from the Roman commander, it's night and it's too hot to sleep. The air is thick in your tent as you read his message, and you know you must act immediately. This could change everything. He's the strongest man in Rome now. If you can get him behind you, your little problem goes away. But if your brother reaches him first, it will be the end of you. You walk out of your tent, barefoot on the burning sand. Caesar is in Alexandria, in your palace, your very bedroom. You have to get to him first. But there's a hostile army between you you and Caesar. There's also the marshland, great glistening mud flats that have been known to swallow whole armies. Your brother's navy patrols the seas. There is no way through. Then 
you see it. The moon glinting off the surface of the Nile, off in the distance but close enough. You know if you get to Caesar, you can turn your skills on him, persuade him as you did the others, speak to him in his own language, the language of surprise. But first you must brave the river, evade the patrols, and slip past the barricades. You choose only one, a servant with a strong back. You explain the plan. You go quickly, steal a rowboat from shore under cover of night. There's an inch of brackish water in the bottom, and you lie down in it as he rose. Your people know you as a living goddess. Now you're hiding in a sack like a load of grain. For hours you listen to the slap of water on the rowboat's bottom. The Nile is the lifeblood of your country. Soon it will bring you to Caesar, to your last best chance. Or maybe imprisonment, an ignoble death. The die is cast. You can't say which way it will fall. Your brother has already sent Caesar the head of his enemy, an enemy you supported. Even if you reach him first, you cannot speak well of your chances. Still, you will not get other chances. Your father used to call you charming and smile upon you. Now your charm is all that's left to you. Soon you will find out whether it's enough. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, Julius Caesar defeated Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus, winning control over all of Rome. Pompey fled to Egypt, planning on taking refuge with his old friends, the Ptolemies, the ruling family of pharaohs in Egypt, so he could build up his strength to challenge Caesar again. But it hadn't worked out so well. The boy king, Ptolemy XIII, had Pompey beheaded on a beach in Egypt. And when Caesar showed up a few days later, Ptolemy sent him Pompey's severed head as an overture of friendship. The thing was, neither Pompey nor Caesar were prepared for what they walked into when they arrived in Egypt. Here's where Cleopatra comes into the story. Jenny, I have been waiting all season for this. All season! I know! I think we were talking about doing an episode on Cleopatra, like, maybe before this arc even started. We've actually been talking about doing an episode on Cleopatra, like, when we had the idea for this podcast. It just took us a while to, like, get into the research and get into the right place narratively to tell the story. This is, like, two years years in the making, guys. Is it two years? I think it's just a year. No, it's like two years because we did research before we launched this podcast for like almost a year before we launched the podcast. Yeah, I guess you're right. So we've been living with this for a long time. So here we are. Here's where Cleopatra comes into the story. The romance between Caesar and Cleopatra is one of the most epic that comes down to us from ancient times. But we can't tell you that story until you understand who Cleopatra was. And to understand Cleopatra, you have to understand the political element in which she swam. There were three defining rules to this element. The first was that the pharaohs of Egypt at this point in history, the Ptolemies, the ruling dynasty Cleopatra came from, weren't Egyptian. They were Greek. And to tell you how that happened, we have to go back roughly about 263 years before Cleopatra was born to when Alexander the Great, in his quest to conquer the entire known world, captured Egypt and founded a city on the banks of the Nile. There was actually already a city there. It had been there for maybe 2,000 years before Alexander came. Its name was Rakotis, or that which was built up. Alexander gave a new name to the city, his own. He called it Alexandria, and then he left. The next time he came back, it was as a corpse. When Alexander died at the age of 32, he left an immense power vacuum. His strongest generals warred over his kingdom like wolves over a steaming carcass. And this became known as the War of the Diadochi, which I didn't know, and I'm just putting in here for people who don't know because you reference it a lot. The War of the Diadochi is totally getting covered in this podcast at some point because it's a, it's a giant tire fire. It is, and it's incredible, and I just did not understand what it was until we started this podcast, so I'm just throwing this in there because we say it a lot. It's also a great place for elephant battles. It'll be elephants 
everywhere, wall to wall elephants. I promise that when we record that elephant battle, I will drink like a war elephant. Human gall cocktails all around. Maybe <laughs> vegan human gall cocktail. <laughs> you can't have a human gall cocktail without the human gall, Jen. Oh, maybe I'm not going to have a human gall cocktail this time, but we'll see. Anyway, one of the strongest, Ptolemy, a Macedonian Greek, decided Egypt was going to be his part of Alexander's empire, and he brought Alexander's body back to Alexandria for burial. The Greek general Ptolemy inserted himself into Egypt's ancient system of pharaohs and founded a dynasty that would last for approximately 300 years. All the male rulers took the name Ptolemy. The female descendants took one of three names, Berenice, Arsinoe, or Cleopatra. The second rule of Cleopatra's element, if you can't keep it in the pants, keep it in the family. Where have we seen this before? <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm getting Julian Claudian flashbacks. I know. Also, sub rule, it's not your imagination. Your family is definitely plotting to kill you and dismember your corpse. The Ptolemies adopted the ancient Egyptian custom of royal incest. To keep the line pure, brother married sister and uncle married niece. Of 15 Ptolemaic marriages, 10 were brother-sister and 2 were uncle-niece. Where have we also heard this? I mean, Julian Claudians and also the Targaryens for all you Game of Thrones fans out there. I feel like this is the Targaryen family we're talking about here. We did the Starks and now we're into the Targaryens. I kind of want to do a whole arc on the Ptolemies, which would just be the tire fire. You could see it from space. Let us know in the comments if you want to see that arc. So the queens were often powerful in their own right, raised their own armies, and ruled jointly with their husbands. The ancient Romans were known for cutthroat intrigue. Here's why you want us to do an arc on the Ptolemies. But the Ptolemies took this to a whole new level. Marrying and murdering your family members was a blood sport that all the Ptolemies practiced. It's hard to find anyone in this family tree who didn't fuck, marry, and kill other people in their close family, including siblings, parents, uncles, nieces, and nephews, everybody. This sounds like I need to know all of the stories yesterday. Well, here's one story. <laughs> this is a little taster here. Cleopatra III, our Cleopatra's great, great aunt, and possibly also grandmother, family tree, circle, all that stuff. It's like a not even a circle. What's more circular than a circle? I mean, a perfect circle is the most, <laughs> most circle you can get. It's a perfect sphere. <laughs> but that seems too orderly. I mean, we use the Oberos for the Julian Claudians, the snake eating its tails for affinity. I mean, it kind of is the same, isn't it? Yeah. Cleopatra III provides a textbook example. Here's a thumbnail version of her bio. She was sexually assaulted by her uncle, Ptolemy VIII, as a teenager while he was married to her mom. He then married her while still married to her mom. Let's just unpack that for a minute. <laughs> this poor lady, I don't know exactly how old she was, maybe 14, was now married to her mom's husband. They were sister wives. They were married to the same man. Yeah. Ptolemy VIII was 22 years older than she was. And this is not the grossest thing about that relationship. For eight years, Cleopatra III shared a throne and a husband with her mother. One time after an argument, Ptolemy VIII murdered and dismembered their 14-year-old son and sent Cleopatra III the severed limbs in a box on the night of her birthday. <laughs> Can we talk about like how you actually have a, an actual argument with a person that doesn't involve dismemberment, please? Maybe this is just how they communicate in severed limbs. Some people's love language is touch. Some people's love language is, I don't know, compliments. No one's love language is severed limbs. I mean, I think that the Ptolemies would disagree. <laughs> I think they'd be like, actually, this is how we do it, okay? And it works for us. And now our 14-year-old son is in a box with his limbs severed. And that's fine. Rarely am I ever speechless. I'm going to continue the story and mull on this. The Ptolemies have left Jen speechless. Whew. 
After her husband's death, Cleopatra III ruled with her other son, Ptolemy X. And the first time I read this, I was like, where's Ptolemy IX? And then I realized he's in the box. Right, he's in the box. (laughs) (laughs) How did we go from the 8th to the 10th? And then it dawned on me and I was like, oh. We're laughing at this because we're assholes and we're Claudius. She ruled with her son for six years before her son decided to have her murdered. And that happened in 101 BC, a year before Caesar was born. Her life and times were not unusual for Ptolemy. So Jenny, it feels like to me, and I lived with them for nine months, the Ptolemies kind of make the Julian Claudians look functional. And I never thought that would be a word I would say in relating to the Julian Claudian dynasty. The Julian Claudians actually kind of had it together compared to these people. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just imagine the family reunions. Well, yeah. I mean, we know how awkward Saturnalia was in the Julian Claudian family, but I feel like every single holiday is equally as awkward as the Saturnalia where like Britannicus outsung Nero and then was poisoned. I mean, that's basically tame. That's just another Tuesday for the Ptolemies. Yeah. So the third rule of Cleopatra's element, Alexandria had an angry mob problem. There was an intense, fierce divide between the Egyptian public and the Greek ruling class. The Ptolemies were Greek to the core, and they weren't the only Greeks in Egypt at this point in history. Throughout the centuries, Ptolemies had brought Macedonian Greek army veterans to Egypt. Greek families settled in villages and colonies all up and down the Nile. They propagated Greek culture by Greeks and for Greeks throughout Egypt. These families educated their children according to Greek customs and settled their disputes in Greek courts according to Greek laws. They spoke only Greek. So you're sensing a theme here, and the theme is these people were Greek, okay? For about 300 years, the people of Egypt were ruled by a minority elite that didn't even speak their language. There was understandable resentment over this among the Egyptians, who were mostly the common people, and this resentment went all the way back to the founding of Alexandria itself. Remember the town that had been on the site of Alexandria, Rakotis? When Alexander the Great's architect and city planner came in to completely overhaul the town and make it over in Alexander's name, the original town of Rakotis became the Egyptian Quarter, which was on the west side of the city. Some sources say the locals continued to call the entire city of Alexandria Rakotis and were understandably pissed about the entire situation. Probably because of the rampant inequality between Greeks and native Egyptians, the city of Alexandria was prone to eruption into violent riots. Anything could spark a riot. A strong wind could spark a riot. Crowds regularly stormed the palace, attacked pharaohs and their families, ripped them limb from limb, and drove them into exile for doing things they didn't like. The exiled ones were actually the lucky ones. At least, that's according to the ancient sources. You always have to be aware of prejudice when reading about different cultures in the ancient world as described by Greek and Roman writers. I mean, we say this all the time, but it's particularly important here. The prevailing stereotypes about the Egyptians were that they were treacherous, murderous, not to be trusted, also sensual, and really into luxuries in a way that made Romans uncomfortable. Oh, and the angry mobs. And of course, there is a massive culture clash here. I know we keep saying it, but you do have to remember that so much of this is told to you through the Greek and Roman eyes and not the native Egyptian eyes, and it's just really worth reiterating that. But we do have to put this in about the angry mobs in Alexandria because the angry mobs are actually like they're one of the strong personalities in the coming story that we can't really tell the story without them. So we have to have that in here, but we also have to just flag that, that this is coming from the ancient Greek and Roman view. But I think there's reason to believe some of these accounts of volatility in Alexandria because this was a society where inequality was really extreme. It was worse even than Rome. The pharaohs were among the richest people in the known world and the Egyptian commoner 
foreigners did not share in that wealth. They were also shut out of their own government. The Ptolemies did not have tribunes of the plebs. In a society where the pharaoh's word was law and the pharaoh and their families were considered gods, violent mob riots may have been the only way the common people of Alexandria could make their voices heard. So if you believe the ancient writers, Alexandria's angry mob made Rome's angry mob look like the puppy bowl. Cassius Dio describes the scene in Alexandria as, quote, just one continuous revel, not a sweet or gentle revel either, but savage and harsh, a revel of dancers, whistlers, and murderers all combined. Throughout the Ptolemy's 300-year reign, the angry mobs of Alexandria were a powerful political force of their own, and they exercised their power through extreme violence. Sometime around 80 BC, Ptolemy XI married his stepmother, also cousin and half-sister, because we can't. Because Ptolemy's. Ptolemy's gonna Ptolemy. Ptolemy's just gonna Ptolemy. (laughs) (laughs) He became pharaoh, and then, just 19 days later, had his new sister-wife cousin murdered. But she was popular with the Alexandrian public, and an angry mob dragged him out of the palace and hanged him in retaliation. He didn't last long. Well, no, don't murder your sister-wife cousin if she's popular with the people, because the people have power, and if they don't like what you're doing, they're gonna take you out of your house, they're gonna drag you into the streets, and then they're gonna hang you. That's a good rule to live by if you're a Ptolemy. Ancient history fangirl rule. PSA. It's a long one, but you know. (laughs) And really specific to this one situation, but still worth repeating. Anyway, then his cousin Ptolemy XII came onto the throne. This Ptolemy was nicknamed Elites, the flutist, because he played the flute. He was Cleopatra's dad. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Cleopatra was born in 69 BC, 11 years after Aletes came onto the throne. She was the second oldest of five children. Her older sister was a Berenice. Her younger siblings included a sister, Arsinoe, and two brothers, both named... What was her name, Jenny? I mean, there's only one name in the name bucket if you're a guy. And it is? Ptolemy. How'd you guess that one? (laughs) Superior guessing powers, I suppose. We don't know anything about Cleopatra's childhood. We can make some assumptions that she was born in a palace in Alexandria amidst unimaginable luxury, scented gardens, columned walkways, and works of art by ancient masters, as well as zoos of exotic animals like giraffes, pythons, and rhinoceroses. She would have been surrounded by a retinue of aristocratic children. And even as a child, she doubtless was expected to help entertain illustrious visitors, including foreign rulers, ambassadors, and some of the preeminent scholars in the world. And she would have been raised to understand from an early age that she was very special, a living goddess, in fact, descended from a long line of gods and goddesses destined to rule. Because here's the fourth rule of Cleopatra's element. Whereas kings were the devil in Rome, in Egypt, kings and queens were gods. There's absolutely no doubt that Cleopatra was extremely well-educated because Alexandria was one of the best places in the world at this time to get an education. Alexandria had a library. No, it didn't have a library. It had the library. We're still talking about it like ages and ages and ages in the future. That's right. It was the library. It was founded sometime during the reign of Ptolemy I 
or two, which made it around 265 years old at most by Cleopatra's time. It was built in the royal quarter, the neighborhood where all the pharaohs had built their palaces, and it would have resembled more a college campus than a library as we think of it today. There was a dining room, reading rooms, meeting rooms, lecture halls, and gardens. Hundreds of scholars lived in the library. They got a lavish stipend, free food, and exemption from taxes. I mean, Jenny, can we go live there? I would really love to live at the Alexandrian Library. That'd be amazing. You're not going to tell me something awful happened to the Alexandrian Library, are you? Um, no spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) There were also scrolls, as many as 400,000 of them at one point. The scrolls were kept in individual cubbyholes that lined the walls. They were meticulously organized according to subject and in alphabetical order. I mean, oh, this is like the original like bookshelf goals, like hashtag shelfie. There weren't actual books like we know of books today. They were scrolls. Hashtag scrolly? Well, yeah, sure. (laughs) The Greek doctor Galen, who was born about 100 years after Cleopatra died, claimed that the Ptolemies were so passionate about collecting books that they ordered all ships that landed in the harbor of Alexandria to surrender any books they carried for copying. The librarians would keep the original and give the copies back to the sailors. Yeah, it was kind of a book tax. It was absolutely a book tax. And I'm kind of glad they did it because I imagine there were some people in the ancient world who read scrolls the way Jenny Williamson reads books, in which case this was just a way of preserving the books because Jenny Williamson does not read a book like a normal human. She destroys it. I guess I'm the book Cucullin. <laughs> you are! You warp spasm all over books! Just don't lend her one. Just give it to her. You're never getting it back. And if you do, it'll be in seven pieces. And you'll be like, how did a person even read this? Half the AG and C will come with it. I can't even explain it. I have tried to control my book reading destructive habits and I just can't. It's it's not within my power. So I just tell my friends, look, if you want to stay friends with me and want to keep liking me, don't lend me your books. Don't lend me your books. Just don't do it. No, just give them to her. It's what I do. Just do it. I'm like, here, this is yours now. If you want to give me a book, I won't say no, but you don't have to give me a book. Just make a recommendation and I'll just get the book myself and then we can still be friends. Or give it to her because sometimes you'll make a recommendation, Song of Achilles, and it will take her like nine years to read it or something ridiculous. Maybe not nine years, five. It took me a while. Yeah, I have a long like to read list. Shame her by gifting her a physical book. Why does it have to come down to shaming me? The Ptolemies. I just, can we just bring it back to the Ptolemies? We're getting back to the Ptolemies now and their book tax. These were like family murdering and killing and also marrying tire fire people who made the Julio-Claudians look functional and also really, really, really had a thing for books. I mean, you have to appreciate that. You absolutely do. And that's, I mean, that's how the library at Alexandria became known as like the library of antiquity that we remember today. They were really good at preserving knowledge and stuff from the ancient world that have given us massive insights in in the present. Yeah. Anyway, the Library of Alexandria and its sister institution, the museum, a philosophical school, not a museum as you would think today. I think this is where the word museum comes from, but it wasn't like a museum. I think so. I haven't researched that, but I think so. So these two sister institutions attracted the best and brightest minds from all over the known world. Alexandria was a lighthouse for learning. Cleopatra was most likely tutored by its leading scholars in topics such as philosophy, oratory, literature, music, geometry, astronomy, and astrology, according to the extremely demanding Greek tradition. Under the watchful eye of illustrious tutors, Cleopatra would have learned the same techniques of rhetoric that Caesar learned, how to form an incisive argument, and how to stand, gesture, and modulate her tone to deliver it with riveting charisma, how to make use of her natural gifts of wit and subtlety, how to persuade. These skills would have come in just as useful one-on-one, as they did in addressing a crowd, as Cleopatra was to find out later. But Cleopatra didn't just learn her charisma young, she also learned about the angry mob. 
When she was about nine years old, her father personally tried and failed to intervene when a visiting Roman dignitary accidentally killed a cat. And the Alexandrian mob ripped him limb from limb. Please tell us why. There's actually a very good reason. Cats were sacred to the Egyptians, and if you killed a cat in Alexandria, a mob would gank you first and ask questions later, or maybe never. Diodorus tells us that if you were walking around the city of Alexandria and you happened upon a deceased cat, you had to withdraw to a very great distance, swear on your life to everyone around you that you had found the animal already dead and hope the mob believed you. And also, I mean, I can't blame them. They really, really cared about their community cats, and that's admirable. Feral cats, otherwise known as community cats, are an important part of our community, and we should learn to live with them side by side peacefully. Not long after, when Cleopatra was 11, she and her dad almost faced the same fate as that Roman dignitary, and luckily it was not cat-related. No cats were harmed in the following paragraph. That was the year the Romans tried to extort an exorbitant amount of money from Cleopatra's uncle, the aptly named Ptolemy of Cyprus, who ruled the island of Cyprus. It's like just what it says on the tin. Ptolemy of Cyprus committed suicide rather than pay up, and the Romans annexed Cyprus, made off with the uncle's stuff, and paraded it through the streets of Rome. In Alexandria, Alites stayed silent. He did not stand up to Rome, and this really pissed off the Alexandrians because they despised the Romans. And if there was one thing 100% sure to put them in a rioting kind of mood, it was their own pharaohs getting too nice and cozy with the Romans. Violent riots rocked the streets, and Alites had to flee to Rome, barely escaping with his life. He took 11-year-old Cleopatra with him. When he got to Rome... Alites immediately started looking around for a rich Roman ally to fund an army that would put him back on his throne. He borrowed enormous sums of money, putting himself massively in debt and embarking on a huge public relations campaign, plastering the Senate and Forum in flyers, proclaiming his right to rule. And also all the injustices he'd suffered, you know, that kind of thing. He really played that up. I want to imagine him with like ancient world like badges and lollipops and sweets being like, hey, vote for me. (laughs) I mean, that was actually kind of it. He was handing shit out. He was standing on street corners, declaiming to everyone how he had been totally unjustly treated by his own people. He was really working it. While he was doing that, he also crashed on our good friend Pompey's couch. Their bro friendship is really adorable. Yeah, and sometimes even kings and pharaohs have to couch surf. Look, Alites was borrowing a lot of money, but he wasn't trying to put that towards just, you know, his Airbnb costs. He wanted to stay with a friend while he was there and spend all his money on getting his stuff done. He had goals, okay? Pompey was an incredibly powerful friend, and Pompey also frequently had an army that he could raise at a minute's notice. Remember, he could just snap his fingers and one would appear. So it was a good friendship to cultivate, and it was something that staying in an Airbnb wouldn't give him. Although who knows, maybe if he'd stayed in Airbnb, he would have gotten army sooner because we all know when we have that one friend who overstays their welcome and we're like, dude, you need to just go for a while. Yeah, I don't know if he ever got to that point with Pompey. Like, I think Pompey was just very, very chill. Like, listen, I know you're down on your luck right now. If you need a place to stay, I have a couch. It's totally fine. Elites became a kind of a fixture in Rome. Greedy senators vied with each other for the expensive gifts he doled out. Pompey worked tirelessly to build up support for him in the Senate. For a while, helping the deposed pharaoh regain his kingdom was kind of a shady, get-rich-quick scheme in Rome. While her dad was wheeling and dealing, Cleopatra would have hung out at Pompey's house. Pompey had a daughter who was about Cleopatra's age, as well as two younger sons. Cleopatra was from Egypt, but she would have been educated in the same Greek tradition as them. They would all have read the same books and shared a lot of cultural references. Just as she'd been at ease amongst the visiting dignitaries and rulers who came to pay court in Alexandria, it's easy to imagine Cleopatra 
Cleopatra at ease amongst the great general and his family. And it's quite possible she and Pompey even struck up a friendship. Pompey was, after all, a devoted friend of the family. Kind of like Uncle Pompey. Except not like that. Except not like that. <laughs> not like a uncle who also marries his niece. Uncle Pompey is totally going to take you out for ice cream and not try to marry you. Because that's not Uncle Pompey style. Uncle Pompey, possibly at this point in time, is madly in love with his wife or at least just good to his wife. Yeah, Uncle Pompey was a dude who was nice to his wife. And at this point, he might have been married to Julia, who was Julius Caesar's daughter. I haven't double checked the dates on that. But he was wildly in love with her. And he is not going to try and marry his honorary nieces because that's terrible. Pompey was a lot of things, but that wasn't him. Well, he would have been super sweet. He would have, you know, taken her on a tour of his... I don't know. What does Pompey do for fun? Like, (laughs) 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 he's got an army. He would have shown the kids his army barracks. (laughs) I don't know. Just quit while you're ahead. He just would have been a nice uncle, okay? He would have been a super sweet uncle who would not try to marry you. That's the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) That's the most important thing is he would not try and marry you. It's all fine. We got there in the end. Anyway, we're going to move on from this. Meanwhile, back in Alexandria, Cleopatra's older sister, Berenice, stepped into the power vacuum. She absolutely refused to marry, despite intense pressure from her advisors. And can I just say, yes, Berenice, you do you. You don't want to get married? Don't get married. It's okay. We got you. She was getting intense pressure from her advisors and even the Alexandrian public to get married because they didn't like being ruled by a woman alone. They wanted to see a woman have a husband and have that husband be kind of in the dominant role, even though a lot of the time in practice, that wasn't what happened. Berenice was just not having this. She even had a suitor strangled in the palace, which I just think is great. I mean, that's just like everything about her is just like, yes, yes. We approve of suitor strangling over here at Ancient History Fangirl. We don't know the whole story, but I have to think if it got to that level, she was like, okay, enough. I'm not marrying you. You know what? If you do not walk away, it's going to result in strangling. Don't test me. (laughs) This guy, whoever he was, tested Berenice and uh, didn't go so well for him. Berenice also sent a group of protesters to Rome while her dad was up there to plead their case that Alites not be reinstated. But Alites had most of these people poisoned before they even reached Rome. Oh, is it even the ancient world if there isn't a poisoning in our story? I know. And also it's the Ptolemies. So expect this kind of thing. Finally, after three years, Alites wound up bribing a Roman general named Gabinius to reinstate him. Gabinius was actually a protege of Pompey's, so he got this through his Pompey connection. Gabinius marched into Egypt, wiped the floor with the Egyptian army, and put Alites back in charge. One of the first things Alites did was behead his suitor-strangling oldest daughter, Berenice. I can't imagine why he did that. I mean, it's kind of a bummer, though. She's cool. She's super cool, but there's no way he can handle having someone that cool and that powerful as a rival. I mean, she had ruled without him when he'd been deposed. She had to go. Right. Then he turned around and heavily taxed the Alexandrian populace who'd driven him out in the first place, forcing them to pay for the cost of his own reinstatement, which did not endear him to the Egyptian public. There were lessons in this for the young Cleopatra. During her formative years, she'd fled with her dad from a murderous mob of their own people, and then she'd watched her dad spend uncountable sums of money trying to buy friends and allies among the Romans so he could get his throne back. She'd also watched him coldly execute her older sister. From a young age, Cleopatra must have learned that safety was nowhere, not among her own people or her own family. However, if things got really bad, Rome could be a place to turn to, but not without a price. Elites ruled for about five more years after he regained his throne, playing flute music the entire time. He was recording his greatest hits. He was. He was experimenting with like flute death metal. Like he was totally all about his style and his brand as a flautist. Flautist. Ooh. Do you think Pompey also played the flout? 
the flute? <laughs> um, I imagine that if he didn't play the flute, he had a real respect for it. He might have played like the lyre or something. I don't know. What would be something that Pompey would play? Definitely not the Carnix. Those are all the ancient world instruments that I really know about. Rest in peace, Carnixes. That's right. If Pompey played any instruments, maybe he and Alites had it like a jam session going on. Do you think they had like their own garage band? Like Pompey played the lyre and Alites played the flute. And maybe when Julius Caesar came into town, he wasn't in a bad mood. He was lead vocals. Because <laughs> you know he'd have to be lead vocals. There's no way he would play like the drums or something. Oh no, Julius Caesar would be really good on lead vocals. And maybe when he wasn't in town, they got Cicero to come in. Can you imagine that's the rivalry between Julius Caesar and Cicero? It was over who got to be lead singer in Pompey's band. Cicero did not want to sing backup, okay? And Cato would sometimes just walk by just barefoot in his dirty toga going, oh. He'd be on percussion. No, he wouldn't even be a part of it because he'd be like, this is such a waste of time. You could be spending this time defending the Republic. Spending time walking everywhere instead of riding a horse because that's how Cato got places. God, could you imagine how dirty his feet must have been? No shoes, no shirt, no service, Cato. Anyway, Elites died in 51 BC of illness. In his will, he left his kingdom to Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy XIII. He made the Roman Senate executors of his will, and Pompey made sure his affairs got settled, and that Cleopatra and her brother ascended to the throne with minimal drama. Because Uncle Pompey, he's there for the family. Absolutely. Cleopatra was 18 when she took the throne. Her brother was only 11. I'm 11! (laughs) He's 11! (laughs) (laughs) He's 11! He's a little kid! Cleopatra inherited a country in turmoil. There was widespread drought and famine. The annual flooding of the Nile had been lower than at any other point in history, which was bad for agriculture, and there was major unrest, much of it caused by a rogue garrison of Roman soldiers, left in Egypt by Gabinius, the Roman general who'd reinstated her dad. These were called the Gabiniani, and they had become a public menace. Remember how Pompey recognized one of his own veterans at the oars in his last rowboat ride? It was probably one of the Gabiniani who was actually the guy who was rowing Pompey across to meet the Ptolemies in Egypt. Her father also owed about 17.5 million drachmas to Rome. And Cleopatra inherited that debt because much like the Bank of Crassus or student loans, you just cannot die and, you know, get rid of that debt. Thanks, Dad. But as a ruler, Cleopatra had some things going for her. One of those was her natural magnetism. All those rhetoric and public speaking lessons had paid off, honing her into a terrifically charismatic, persuasive person, even at the age of 18. Today, Cleopatra is assumed to have been stunningly beautiful, but in her time, it was her wit and charm she was best known for. Stacey Schiff calls her, quote, a commanding woman, first in politics, diplomacy, and governance, fluent in nine languages, silver-tongued, and charismatic. Hold up. Plutarch has a thing to say. He's emerging from his fever dream to tell us something. (laughs) Quote, For her beauty was in itself not altogether incomparable, nor such as to strike those who saw her, but to converse with her had an irresistible charm, and her presence, combined with the persuasiveness of her discourse, had something stimulating about it. There was sweetness also in the tones of her voice, and her tongue, like an instrument of many strings, she could readily turn to whatever language she pleased. Which brings us to the other secret weapon Cleopatra had, her linguistic skills. 
Somewhere along the way, while learning rhetoric and philosophy and literature and astronomy and all the other things an educated upper-class Greco-Roman was supposed to know, Cleopatra picked up nine languages. She spoke Latin and Greek fluently. Plutarch also lists Ethiopian, Hebrew, Arabian, Syrian, Mede, Parthian, and Troglodyte. And I just want to go on a little bit of a detour about that word, troglodyte. It was a word that in this time period was used to mean cave dweller. In ancient times, it was kind of a racist word. In modern times, it's still a racist word. Right. I mean, it's this is a racist word. They used it to refer to people living on the African coast of the Red Sea. I do not know if these were people who lived in caves or not, but that was the association. Some people think that this might have been a click language, which is a really cool thought. So it's fascinating to think that Cleopatra maybe spoke a click language. Who knows if that's true, but it's fun to speculate. But we know that she spoke ancient Egyptian, and this is one of the oldest recorded languages known to human existence, meaning it's one of the oldest languages we have writing for. Its earliest written sentence dates from 2690 BC. The oldest written sentences in ancient Greek and Latin date from the 8th and 7th centuries BC, so it's a lot older than those languages. It was very common in Cleopatra's time for the Egyptians to learn Greek. They tended to pick it up easily, but Greek speakers in Ptolemaic Egypt rarely tried to learn Egyptian, and this probably had to do with class as well as linguistic difficulty. It does make sense that that's probably the case because Egyptians who needed to interact with the upper class would have to learn their language, but the Greeks could just expect that all the people in Egypt would just learn their language. They didn't have a need to learn the language of the common people, which was Egyptian. And this is also one of those things where when we talk about writing and stuff like that, you can see the dynamic here. You have a ruling class who isn't bothering to really learn anything about your culture, to learn your language. Yeah, everything is a powder keg. I mean, they just showed up one day and just decided that this was theirs now. They get your country. They get all your country's wealth. They're going to settle here. They're not even going to bother to learn your language, and you just have to suck it. I mean, it's colonialism. Yeah. Of all the Ptolemaic rulers, Cleopatra was the only one who bothered to learn the language of her people. She spoke nine languages. I can barely speak English sometimes. I mean, as a person who tried in adulthood to learn French, and my French is still kind of shaky, like, it's an achievement learning another language. I mean, she might have learned some of these languages in childhood. We're not sure, but it's such an astonishing achievement to know that many languages. Yeah, and also to be a woman who's that educated in the ancient world. I mean, women were educated, but I don't think any of them that I can recall knew nine languages. I mean, there probably were other women who did, but this is the most famous one. So Cleopatra was incredibly charismatic, multilingual, very sophisticated, and only 18 when her father died and she rose to the throne, along with her 11-year-old brother, who was 11! I'm 11! I don't think he was quite as accomplished, but maybe that's a spoiler. And from the first, Cleopatra was caught between a rock and a hard place. Her country was still independent from Rome, but only by the skin of its teeth. The Roman Senate regularly intervened in Egyptian affairs. I mean, it had to intervene or Cleopatra wouldn't have been on that throne. Yeah, exactly. That's basically how she got her throne because Uncle Poppy set it up for her. Exactly. If Cleopatra didn't appease Rome, she faced the prospect of the Romans just invading and wresting the country from her hands. But the Alexandrian populace despised Rome, and they expressed their displeasure in violent terms. Remember, the reason Cleopatra and her dad had to flee their own country and crash on Uncle Pompey's couch was that her dad failed to stand up to Rome when the Romans seized control of Cyprus, and the angry mob drove them out of town. But the common people of Alexandria weren't the 
the only people Cleopatra had to please. There were the Macedonian Greeks, the elite upper class whose interests and culture were totally separate from the Egyptian public. There were cliques of palace advisors and military leaders and the priestly class. And then there was her own family. All of these constituencies could turn stabby if they felt like their interests weren't being represented and their interests frequently conflicted. Hmm, this seems very familiar, Jenny. I can't quite put my finger on it. Do we know anyone else who had different constituencies who turned stabby? Let's ask our good friend Julius Caesar, shall we? Hold up. Julius Caesar has something to say. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone stop what you're doing and listen. (laughs) Julius Caesar would like it to be known that Julius Caesar is very well versed with stabby angry mobs. And Julius Caesar recommends befriending the mob before the mob unfriends you. Thank you, Julius Caesar. That was actually really smart. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm sensing a theme here. And the theme is me agreeing with shit that Julius Caesar (laughs) says in the third person. Well, Julius Caesar is very wise, and he uses his third person to make sure that everyone knows that Julius Caesar sometimes is capable of wise diplomacy and mercy. Oh my god. Stop! I feel like a bad person. That is what he did, though. He put everything into the third person so that you would agree with the things he was saying, because he presented it so rationally and logically that you're like, I guess I see that... You can actually really see that in the commentaries, because if you read the commentaries, the POV viewpoint he's using is like detached third person. It takes all his emotion out of it. He states everything very simply and without any feelings, you know, so it's hard to get a sense of who Julius Caesar is unless you just take his actions into account. Like he's not really infusing his personality into the commentaries. It's still there in what he does, you know, like especially I think you see him talking to his soldiers when they don't want to go see Ariovistus and other places like that. You see what this guy was like and how he operated on a one-to-one basis, but he really tried really hard to take himself out of the commentaries. Yeah, because he knew what he was doing was wrong, and he was trying to paint himself in a light where you could agree with it. From the first, Cleopatra signaled that she would be a populist. Hmm, who does this remind us of? Hmm. It's on the tip of my tongue. One of her first acts as queen was to sail 600 miles upriver to Thebes to inaugurate a new Bukis bull. The bull was part of a sacred cult to a war god named Montu and was believed to be the god's representative on earth. The Bukis bull had to be white with a black face and each one lived about 20 years before being mummified. Displaying her talent for pageantry, Cleopatra assembled an immense floating procession of barges all the way up to the southern end, the upstream end of the Nile, to the area of Thebes, wearing an elaborate ceremonial costume because yes she really did it up for this well yeah i mean that's part of being a populist isn't it it's the pageantry the people loved her for it too Cleopatra presided over the ritual during the full moon amidst crowds of priests and pilgrims. The locals loved the pageantry, and they were thoroughly beguiled by their new queen. Cleopatra was supposed to be ruling jointly with her 11-year-old brother. I'm 11! (laughs) This is going to happen a lot, guys. (laughs) Her father may have even intended for them to marry, as this was pretty normal in this dynasty. There is no record that Cleopatra married her brother, but it's possible she did. There is a record, though, that months into her reign, she'd started to shunt him aside. Her dad died in March, and by August, Cleopatra was starting to be listed as sole ruler on official documents, and their coins showed her face alone. Like we said, during Cleopatra's reign, the Nile had a very low flood. The Nile was supposed to flood every year, and that was necessary for the crops in this region. A low flood was a disaster. It meant the priests couldn't perform the ritual sacrifices their gods required. It meant out in the villages, people were hungry. Some of them poured into Alexandria, which was ill-equipped to support them, while others turned to banditry. Violence was endemic, both in the city and outside of it. 
drastic measures were called for. Cleopatra moved quickly, issuing an emergency decree to send wheat and dried vegetables north from the rural areas to feed the city. This was a calculated move. The city was where the most dangerous mobs and the most immediate threats were. Cleopatra issued the death sentence for those who resorted to banditry and rewards for any who informed on them. She also offered financial incentives to encourage farmers to stay on their farms. From the first, Cleopatra showed a tendency to operate quickly, decisively, and without asking anyone for advice or permission. Hmm, who does that sound like? It's like it's on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of it. It's like someone that we've been talking about for months now. Smoolius Beezer. Bullius Sleezer. Bullius Sleezer. That is so familiar. Why? Julius Fleezer. No, that's not right. I swear to God, it's like that name, but not like that name. All right, let's get back to Cleopatra. Maybe it'll come to us if we keep reading. And that became even more clear as Rome descended into civil war. And suddenly, Uncle Pompey was calling in favors. In 50 BC, about a year after Cleopatra took the throne, Bibulus sent his two sons to try to persuade the Gabinians, the Roman troops now living in Egypt and generally being a public menace, to return to Rome to fight for Pompey. But the Gabinians really did not like that suggestion. So much so that they tortured and murdered Bibulus' sons. Yeah, just for bringing it up. They really didn't want to hear this. Well, they were happy. They'd relocated. They were making a killing being assholes in this new city that they sort of were like, hey, we like the weather. We like being assholes. We're in this new place. Why would we move? Yeah, I know. So like this actually might have contributed to why the Egyptian public didn't like Romans because the Gabinians were there just being professional assholes. I mean, there's nothing else for it. They were really just being jerks. It was their branding. (laughs) Cleopatra acted immediately, having the perpetrators arrested and sent to Roman chains. The Gabinians were not so into this idea that some of them got to be arrested and sent to Roman chains. She did not talk this over with her advisors, and it pissed off her own army. Nobody liked that she just did this unilaterally without having a conversation with anyone about it. Who does this remind us of, Jen? Hmm. Sounds like Julius Kaiser? No, it's not an Iser sound. It's an Ezer. I'm all confused now. I don't know who it could be. No, you're right. Trulius. Trulius. Trulius? Trulius Sleezer. Yeah, that's pretty close. I'm going to keep going with this paragraph, and if you think of it, let me know. A year after that, in 49 BC, when Uncle Pompey sent his own son from Dyrrhachium to ask her personally for help, because at this point he was fighting Julius Caesar, Cleopatra <laughs> sent soldiers, a fleet of warships, and most importantly, grain to Uncle Pompey because Uncle Pompey had needs right then and he'd help the family out. He'd let them crash on his couch. He took her for ice cream. He did not try to marry her. Again, she did this without checking in with her advisors. Cleopatra was walking a line here. Uncle Pompey was a close friend of the family and there may have been some affection between them and we've talked about why, but also Cleopatra was cultivating her powerful friends in Rome, a lesson she learned from her dad and a smart move if she didn't want to make Roman enemies because the Romans are a pain in the ass if they decide that you're their enemy. But the Egyptian public did not like what it was seeing. Why was Cleopatra sending grain to Rome when there was a famine on in Egypt? And the clique of powerful generals and advisors in the palace did not like how she wasn't asking their opinion on the geopolitical situation in Rome before getting involved in their civil war. That clique of generals and advisors, by the way, they had some very specific likes and dislikes. Things they liked included long walks on the beach, pina coladas, cats, puppies, 
puppies and kittens because who doesn't like puppies and kittens? Don't be a monster. Also, cats are sacred animals. If you kill one in Alexandria, they will kill you. As they should. Elite's greatest hits flute album because, I mean, who doesn't want to listen to that on repeat? I mean, Elite's was a flute monster, okay? <laughs> That's not the right way. <laughs> but they especially liked being the power behind the throne. I think that's what they like the most out of all the things on this list. <laughs> I don't know. On that list, I kind of like Elite's greatest hits flute album. Come on. Flute Monster. How do you not like that? Oh my God, it was called Flute Monster. <laughs> <laughs> it was Death Flute Metal. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, please show me the way to this Death Flute Metal. <laughs> I'm going to go on YouTube and see if I find any. And if I do, I'll put it in the show notes. Somebody's got to have like a flute metal band out there. I have a feeling people are just going to tweet us all these links to death flute metal. And there's going to be a part of me that's like, no. And another part that's like, I am intrigued. No, I'm super intrigued. <laughs> so these advisors liked a nice, malleable pharaoh who would depend on their wise advice and lean on their skills as translators to communicate with their public. I mean, sounds like the perfect job for an 11-year-old boy. I'm 11. <laughs> but Cleopatra didn't need to work through translators. She could speak the language of most visiting dignitaries and, most importantly, her own people. And she didn't need anyone's advice. These advisors did not like Cleopatra. Yeah, she was not on their list of likes. Well, she wasn't malleable. But she didn't need them to be the power behind the throne. She was her own power behind her own throne and also in front of her own throne. She was both behind and in front of her own throne. First off, Cleopatra was a woman. Like, let's just get that out there. Which... I guess would be fine as long as she fainted and fluttered her eyelashes and asked all her advisors to mansplain her own job to her all the time because that would be, you know, safe and would make them feel like they were needed. It's like, okay, if you're a powerful pharaoh and you're a dude, I guess they would still like to be the power behind the throne, but it's they could live with that. But a woman being a powerful pharaoh and not asking their advice was just a kick in the teeth to these people. But Cleopatra was decisive and competent and knew her own mind. They preferred the young Ptolemy, who was 11. I'm 11! <laughs> he was male, young, and malleable, and perfectly willing to let them rule through him while he played on his ancient world version of Xbox or, you know, paintball or whatever. The key people in this clique, the Egyptian top general Achilles, the eunuch prime minister Pothienos, and Theodotus the tutor, who'd told Cleopatra's little brother to kill Pompey. I was like, you know, some A-plus advice there. Thanks. Forced Cleopatra out of her palace so they could put the young Ptolemy on the throne alone. Cleopatra had friends in Upper Egypt. That was where she had inaugurated the new Bucchus Bull. And now she fled to them and started building up her own army among the local people. And you have to give Cleopatra credit here. We've seen how she was raised at the absolute pinnacle of luxury, but she would have been living a lot rougher in Upper Egypt, which was the southern end of the country, quite possibly in a tent or tramping around local villages and towns, building support among local warlords and mercenary groups in a dozen different languages. She might not have had access to money because she was a refugee from her own capital at this point. So she must have been very good at making all these people believe that allying with her rather than the more powerful and legit palace faction would pay off because she was the underdog here. One thing's for sure, her excellent linguistic skills made a huge difference here because she could talk to the locals and persuade them. Cleopatra is in the middle of a civil war and she's the underdog. Jenny, this sounds really, really familiar. Oh my God, who does this remind us of? It keeps coming up. It couldn't be like Julius Caesar, could it? I don't know what you're talking about. It's like you're speaking English, but... But the words I'm coming out of my mouth are not English? I just don't understand them, that's all. Anyway, meanwhile, Ptolemy's advisors assembled their own army, 20,000 strong, 
They marched to the fortress of Pelusium by the sea near what's now Port Said, just outside of Alexandria. Cleopatra camped east along the isolated desert coast on the Sinai Peninsula, and both armies prepared for war. It was high summer. The heat would have been intolerable, the air bristling with impending battle. This was what Pompey walked into when he landed on their shores. If you listened to the previous episode, you know what happened to Uncle Pompey. Fleeing his defeat at the hands of Caesar's army, he was casting about for a friendly port in the storm. He was looking for a couch to crash on. He was. I mean, he was in the same position that Elites had been in all those years ago. He needed a couch. He needed a couple of cold beers to get over this defeat and regroup. And he needed to get his life back together. It might take him three years. And, you know, in the meantime, if they got the band back together, minus, you know, that whole Julius Caesar, they'd be fine. Julius Caesar does not get to sing lead vocals in the flout band anymore. Uncle Pompey had been a staunch supporter of the Ptolemies in Rome, defended their interest in the Senate, given Elites a place to crash when he needed one, and saw his will was carried out after his death. Cleopatra and her brother both owed their thrones to Uncle Pompey. But now, Ptolemy XIII, on the advice of his tutor, had Uncle Pompey's head chopped off before he even made it to the beach. And three days later, Caesar arrived in Alexandria. I mean, the thing about it is that Pompey was counting on some Ptolemies, and those people made the Julio-Claudians look functional. That's kind of a Ptolemy move, just like randomly chopping your ally's head off. It's just disappointing. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Jen is very disappointed in Ptolemy the 13th. I expected so much more, like three years on my couch. What about the band? Well, the band will never get back together now. No, the band is done. (laughs) If you can just get your hand on some of those death metal flute albums, you're lucky. I mean, to be fair, this was always a big gamble for Uncle Pompey to take because Elites was dead. He'd been thrown out of his country once and Pompey was now going back there, assuming it would be safe. But that had always been a volatile area. Yes, he thought that Cleopatra would welcome him because she probably would have if she'd been in charge, but she wasn't. So it shows how far out of the loop of intrigue and knowledge and politics he was to even go there. Everyone else was also kind of shady, or at least he thought they were. So he's like, and and if you're the deposed one and someone as powerful as Julius Caesar is building up his strength in Rome, it's a political and military risk to support the losing side in that. It's just saying yes to a giant war. So Caesar was a powerful potential ally, one both siblings needed. If Caesar picked sides, that could decide the war and both siblings knew it. Ptolemy Thirteenth had just sent Caesar a very strong overture of friendship by sending him the severed head of his greatest enemy. And Cleopatra, she'd picked the wrong side in the Roman Civil War. She'd sent soldiers, grain, and ships to Uncle Pompey. If she didn't get to Caesar quickly and plead her case, he was going to side with her brother and actually chances were high he'd probably side with her brother anyway. Cleopatra had no way of knowing that Caesar had wept when he saw what her brother had done to Pompey. Caesar, the minute he arrived in Alexandria, he realized he'd stumbled into a civil war. Very astute, Caesar. Good job, Caesar. I'm very glad. Way to pay attention to your surroundings. Egypt wasn't a Roman province yet, but it was a major power in an area that was important to Rome. Rome got most of its grain from North Africa, and a destabilized Egypt threatened the grain supply. Plus, the Egyptian ruling family owed Rome a lot of money. It was in Rome's interests, in Caesar's interests, 
to make sure it stayed stable. So Caesar decided to stick around for a while. He was going to solve this little family dispute. I mean, he ne- he didn't really understand the Ptolemies. I know solving this little family dispute among the Ptolemies, like, <laughs> that's hilarious. Caesar, look, back away slowly. <laughs> Do not get involved. You think that you know what this is because of the Julio-Claudians. You don't. I mean, the thing about Caesar is he's the original Julian-Claudian. And he's like, oh, just wait. I'm going to enjoy my time here and then I'm going to curse my legacy. <laughs> Do you know what he's going to do? He's just going to absorb this dysfunction and give it to all of his adopted relatives and family members through the generations. That's basically exactly what <laughs> happened. Julius Caesar strolled into Egypt, absorbed the dysfunction, and then disseminated it to all his descendants. I mean, not to give a spoiler of the, what, four-part arc we already did. <laughs> that was very astute, Jen. Thank you for that. I was like, wait, guys, I totally want to have this as part of my family legacy. Was that you channeling Julius Caesar? I just channel him. I can't help it. She also does this with Cucullin. It's pretty impressive. Don't mention him. He always wants to warp spasm. I mean, Cucullin and I have had some very philosophical conversations. You're just testing me now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not letting him come back into the story today. (laughs) Love you, Cucullin, but you're taking a reject. It's a whole different type of dysfunction. So Julius Caesar was just going to absorb all the dysfunction, store it up for later on, and he was going to get his hands on all that money, all those sweet, sweet talents that Aletes owed. And then he was going to peace out like a hero and be like, look, Rome, I bring you grain. I bring you talents. I bring you beautiful things. I am Julius Caesar. It was drachmas. Okay, it was definitely drachmas, but I don't care because I really like the idea of it being talents because what a funny word. Talents are like a giant person-sized jar of money. So... If you're watching any kind of like ancient Rome drama of any kind and somebody hands someone else like a bunch of coins and a handful of coins and they're like, here's a half a talent. That's not a half a talent. Oh, what show are you talking about, Jenny? You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm just like, that's not you need like a whole jar. I'm talking about Rome and HBO, which is excellent. Usually when I watch like Rome period dramas these days, I wind up screaming at the screen. It's a byproduct of the podcast. And to be honest, if you've never seen it, Rome pretty much starts... It starts right at the crossing of the Rubicon. Crossing of the Rubicon. So like two episodes back from us, that's where Rome starts. Anyway, Caesar didn't realize that the whole city of Alexandria was a barrel full of Greek fire waiting for a spark. Caesar strolled into Alexandria with all the symbols of Roman power on full displays, those massive eagles. Caw, caw. He was surrounded by his lictors or his official bodyguards and officers from his army. They were all sort of carrying those eagles, being like, these are my eagles. They had their horsehair plumes. Right. This is very, very much Roman pageantry and not Egyptian pageantry. So much pageantry because Julius Caesar liked pageantry. I mean, I feel like this doesn't even need to be said, but I'll say it anyway in case you didn't get it from the tone of my voice. This was the exact wrong thing to do. Yes, this is a total misstep, total faux pas in ancient Alexandria, showing up with all the trappings of Roman power and parading those around in the street. In the middle of a civil war. Yes. <laughs> when you're Roman and all of ancient Alexandria is like, we do not like Roman. We do not want to be like part of Rome. Please know goodbye. So Caesar was greeted by angry, violent mob riots. Surprising nobody. <laughs> exactly. And this time, surprising Caesar... They weren't on his side. I mean, I guess surprising nobody but Caesar. That's what I should have said. Exactly. Caesar was like, I know mobs. I'm frequently the person who is the rabble rouser who brings the mob together. What is this nonsense? I know Julius Caesar is the mob whisperer. He's got this. 
Or does he? He does not have this. <laughs> the Alexandrian mob was the one angry mob Julius Caesar couldn't sweet talk. The Egyptian populace did not want to become a Roman province. They didn't ask Caesar to show up and solve their problems. And as far as they were concerned, he could just butt right the fuck out. Go home, Caesar. No one wants any. Nobody asked you to show up. Look, nobody wants any Caesar. And unfortunately, much like Crassus, they're going to get more Caesar. Caesar fled through the streets of Alexandria and blockaded himself in the palace as an angry mob congregated outside. Then he sent a summons to both siblings to come to him so he could straighten them both out. Cleopatra knew she had to get to Caesar before her brother did. Problem was, her brother's army was between her and Caesar. Also between Cleopatra and Caesar was a marshland teeming with mosquitoes and treacherous mudflats, and it had been known to swallow whole armies, and if you didn't get swallowed by the mudflats, the mosquitoes were really, really bad. Going through the marshes was a death sentence and also very uncomfortable. And she couldn't sail west because her brother's navy watched the seas. So here's what Cleopatra did. Taking only one retainer, one person, she embarked in a tiny one-person rowboat, not a robot. A one-person robot. <laughs> I mean, it's something I would say. I love that part in the previous episode where, like, Pompey showed up in a robot. <laughs> Jenny edited this out. Poor Pompey lost and he escaped in a rowboat. <laughs> I'm doing it again, Jenny. He escaped in a rowboat. And for some reason, I could not say the word rowboat. It just kept coming out as robot. And I don't know if it's my accent. I edited it out because we have so many paragraphs that we basically reread every paragraph several times because we both stutter over everything. So yeah, much like moustaches, we can't say whether or not it will appear again in Ancient History Fangirl, but you know. There were robot rowboats in that episode and you didn't see them. They were hidden, but, um, but they were definitely there behind the scenes. I don't know what the fuck happens with me. I just do it. It's genius. It's because I can't speak and I don't know why I decided to do a podcast. She embarked in a rowboat down the River Nile, dodging customs agents and heavy traffic guided by the light of the 350-foot-tall lighthouse at Pharos. At some point during that trip, Cleopatra lay down in the bottom of the boat inside a large hemp sack. Her servant rowed his boat right up below the palace walls, slung his mistress over his shoulder, and strolled into the palace, possibly through a side door, and right into the quarters Caesar had taken for himself. This meeting has captured our imaginations throughout history. Cleopatra has been depicted as emerging from her carpet in the famous movie Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. It was a carpet, perfectly made up, dripping with gold and jewels and silks, her eyeliner absolutely on point, but it's more likely she would have been dressed simply so as not to attract attention. Also, can we just stop for a minute? It's like high summer in Egypt and she's been chilling in a hemp sack. If she was wearing makeup, her face would not look on point. No, she wouldn't have had that really on point Egyptian eyeliner. It would have been best advised not wear eyeliner or mascara or anything that could run because it would have been really sweaty inside the sack. It would have been so sweaty. And I mean, I know this is maybe just me, but in the summer I'm like, oh, is it even worth putting any eye makeup or mascara on how soon before it falls off my face because I'm so hot and sweaty. I mean, it would have been like Crassus in the blanket fort levels of sweaty. It would have been really bad. I bet Crassus wasn't wearing eyeliner in there either. So with good reason. Let's be honest. Crassus never wore eyeliner, but if he did, he would have been fierce. Oh, he totally would have been fierce. It would have been winged out eyeliner. That would have been one thing that Caesar and Pompey couldn't have competed with Crassus on. I feel like pouring one out now for his eyeliner game that never was. I'm pouring one out right now. 
Anyway, back to what's happening here with Cleopatra. So Cleopatra is all rolled up in this hemp sack. She's super sweaty. She's not wearing eyeliner. She's dressed really simply because if she was stopped, she wouldn't want people to know she was Cleopatra because they might be like, hey, we've got Cleopatra and her brother wants her dead. We know what to do with that. Right. Also, though, like if people stopped the rowboat and found there was a person in a sack, like that is a little bit conspicuous also. So I don't know. Well, yeah, but she probably wasn't in a sack the entire time. No, she's probably sitting in the rowboat some of the time. Totally. And she probably looked like she was this guy's wife or sister or whatever. She looked very simple. And they were just out for a row up the Nile. Definitely not rowing. Oh, she is not helping him. She is like, I will not even fan you. We know who the servant (laughs) and who the master is in this relationship. It's no equality in ancient Egypt, (laughs) especially among the Macedonian Greeks and the Egyptians. Anyway, moving on. Stacey Schiff says she probably wore a sleeveless linen tunic, something very basic with the only ornament being the white ribbon tied around her head and knotted at the back. This was the diadem, a symbol of Hellenistic royalty. We don't know exactly what went down during this meeting or what these two said to each other, but whatever it was, it must have been electric. Both Caesar and Cleopatra were enormously charismatic people. Julius Caesar was as legendary for his conquests in the bedroom as those on the battlefield, and he specialized in seducing Rome's most sophisticated aristocratic women. Cleopatra, meanwhile, who was 21 at this point, was already a promising stateswoman, an extreme multilingual genius with a talent for theater and more charm and charisma in her little finger that could be found in most small countries. I mean, swoon. I'm swooning. Are you swooning? I am. I am swooning right now. This is so romantic. I think what I love the most about this is how much these two people have in common, which we've been saying this whole time. This is Cleopatra's character establishing moment where she seizes initiative, acting fast, sneaking through enemy lines to pull off something totally audacious and get the jump on her enemies. Who does this remind us of, Jen? Hmm. Caesar loves this shit, right? Sneaking through enemy territory, wearing disguises, acting fast, decisively, getting the jump on his enemies. He has a collection of fake mustaches and everything. He loves this shit. Cleopatra signaled immediately that she was cut from the exact same cloth. She could not possibly have pulled off a better introduction. It's almost like she had the playbook and she got her hands on it when someone was coming through Alexandria and they had their book text. I mean, it's almost like she read the commentaries that <laughs> and knew her enemy or her, her knew her target, knew her audience. Absolutely. And then I'm going to know everything about him. And then I'm just going to take all these like bits and pieces from his playbook. And then I'm going to use those plays on him. I mean, it's freaking genius because you had to ask yourself, like, how much did she know about Julius Caesar going into this and how much of this was deliberate and was she introducing herself to him as somebody that he was gonna like immediately. Absolutely. And everything was right there for her to do just that. And it worked because everything he did next, we can pretty much explain by the fact that Julius Caesar, the urbane, elegant Roman aristocrat and military commander at the height of his power who had done and seen and lived through literally everything, had lost his ever-loving mind over the 20-year-old Egyptian queen. Swoon. That's it for this week. Tune in in two weeks for the next installment in this series. And in the meantime, you can connect with us on social, on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan, and on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And check out our Patreon. We've got a really exciting announcement for our Patreon that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Minisodes! We're at, I think, around $100 a month as of this recording. Once we get to $150 a month, we're going to start producing mini-episodes, about 10 minutes long, just for our Patreon subscribers. 
these would deal with things we didn't get to cover in the episodes because there wasn't time. And we always have all these endless little rabbit holes that we could go down and we don't because we're trying to stick to a story. Jen, what do you want to do a mini-sode on? Yeah, I'd love to go into some of my tips and tricks for surviving mythology, like why you should always change the color of your sails when you're returning home. Otherwise, what happens to you? The thing is, (laughs) the consequences for not following the tips and tricks usually mean death. Oh. Why, if you put a baby out for exposure, which we don't recommend you do, that baby definitely did not die and came back stronger than before. Right. It got raised by bears or wolves. Bears or wolves or shepherds and will definitely destroy your city. There's definitely just a lot of animals and shepherds out there who are just dying to raise somebody's baby. You want to turn mean girl with Cicero. We all know this. We've known it for a while. I want to go back to middle school with Cicero and just read you guys the cattiest bits of letters to friends where he gossips about Julius Caesar and Cleopatra and all these people that we're getting to know over the course of this arc that we're doing. And also, I kind of want to read you the bits of the commentaries that are just really off the wall. Like Julius Caesar gets high and hallucinates some animals in Gaul that definitely don't exist. There's always bits and pieces of research that we have to leave out that are really, really good, juicy stories. I would also read really like to talk about the Battle of Winterfell and why that was a shit show. Yeah, if you guys want to hear us talk about why the Battle of Winterfell was kind of a shit show, then consider giving to our Patreon. Like, nobody else is doing that on the internet. Nobody else is us. Sometimes on minisodes, we might talk about things in pop culture and how they relate back to ancient history. Stuff that we don't have time to put into the episodes, but that we think you'll really enjoy. So that's kind of where we're at with this idea for minisodes. And if you'd like to see that and you want to help support that, check out the Ancient History Fangirl Patreon. There's a link to it on ancienthistoryfangirl.com and consider joining at whatever level works best for you. And if you enjoyed the episode we just did, and if you like the podcast in general, know that it was brought to you by our Patreon members. We cannot thank you enough. Thank you.